Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. Today's episode is part of a special summer series discussing the stories of women found in Scripture. This week's conversation is hosted by Dr. Lynn Coick and Serene Musselman. Join us as we debunk common myths, explore important themes, and discuss the relevance of these women's stories for our faith today. Hey there, Alabaster Jar listeners. We are back again with another episode in our special summer series. Today, Dr. Lynn Coick and I are discussing another woman from the New Testament. And Lynn, would you uh, introduce our listeners to the woman who we are talking about today? Absolutely, Serene. Yes, we are talking about the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, who her same the same story is found also in Mark uh, chapter 7. And Mark identifies her as the Syrophoenician woman. And, but they're the, it's the same story. It's the same woman. Um, we can talk a little bit about why the different naming of, of the woman as we get into the story. Awesome. Well, uh, Lynn, would you mind by starting our conversation the same way we have for every other episode in this series? And by the way, listeners, if you haven't been able to catch up with this current series, I encourage you to go back to the first week and start there. We have had some great conversations. Lynn and I, as well as Dr. Carmen Imes, have been looking at the stories of women in the Old Testament and the New all summer long. And one of the ways that we have started every episode is by discussing myths that are commonly uh, understood about the stories of these women. So Lynn, what are some common myths that you see come up time time and again as the story of the Canaanite woman is discussed? Right, thanks, yeah. Um, well, and being called the Canaanite woman, I guess we could sort of say she fits in the Old Testament, or at least Matthew's trying to locate her there. But um, uh, yeah, the, the Canaanite woman, I think is often accused of being um, uppity, or forward or inappropriate in that she addresses Jesus publicly, um, somewhat, uh, I don't know if I want to say aggressively, but she stays at it, right? And, and so she's not seen as polite or, and even people will go as far as to say she's immoral in how determined she is in the conversation with Jesus. Um, so I would say that's one myth. I think another myth, though, is that she somehow wins or beats Jesus in an argument. Um, that is also another interpretation that I've heard. And I, I just don't like to frame the conversation as a zero-sum game. Um, I think there, there's a lot that, that's going on here that we will unpack, but it's, it's not a case, I don't think, of Jesus uh, suddenly realizing, oh, wow, I had it all wrong. She straightened me out. Um, she, she, she certainly models uh, exemplary discipleship, but the character of, of Jesus is also, I think, in this story, uh, exemplary and uh you know, so, so we have to unpack it because he also does say, he, he alludes to her or compares by analogy um, her, her approach as a, as a dog. <laughs> and most yes. women do not want to be addressed in that 
with, with that kind of analogy. So, so we have some work to do here, Serene, in trying to uh, understand what's going on. Yes, definitely. Lots to unpack here. So you, I've heard you already start to point out a couple of themes maybe that we see happening in the story. So let's move into that. What are uh, some common themes that we should be paying attention to when we read the story, whether we're looking at it in Matthew or Mark? What are some themes that we see um, that should catch our attention as we read her story? Well, one key thing is that Jesus is now operating outside of Galilee. He's actually working now, presenting uh, his, or, or traveling in uh, a Gentile area. So Mark highlights that when he says Syrophoenician. It's the, it's the geographical area. It'd be like me saying, I live in Chicagoland. I'm kind of telling you, I don't live actually in the city of Chicago, but I live in one of the suburbs. So we call it Chicagoland. That's what Mark is saying, Syrophoenician. But what Matthew does when he says Canaanite is he is placing her within the uh, redemption history of Israel. And if you go back to the ancient Israelites, their arch enemies were Canaanites. So Matthew is putting a, a religious twist to the story by identifying her as Canaanite. So he he's placing her uh, in this larger uh, uh, redemptive narrative. Um, then I, so, and I think sometimes what happens when, when we listen to, uh, or when we read the story, since the whole question about the relationship of Jew and Gentile, for the most part, in most of our churches, is really not, not a contested question anymore. We forget that how, how powerful and important that ethnic dimension, uh, was at the time of Jesus and, and all of the New Testament in that first century. So that's one theme we want to keep in mind as we, as we look through. Um, think also, if I can just note, uh, Matthew talks about a couple of other Canaanites actually in the genealogy of Jesus in the very first chapter. So although the Canaanites were at one level an arch enemy of the ancient Israelites, there were some who actually were very much in favor and became part of the Israelite family. So we can think of um, Rahab from Joshua 2, and she's mentioned in Jesus's genealogy in Matthew, and then also Tamar, who is mentioned in Genesis 38. So, and, and then in the genealogy. So they're both, uh, you know, an arch enemy as a group, but then also certain individual Canaanites are actually members of Jesus's family tree. So that, that's something we want to keep in mind. Matthew's doing some really interesting things by, by mentioning Canaanite. Um, and then I think the other point to note is the dialogue. So, um, we have, um, in Matthew's gospel, this is the first time a woman speaks directly, uh, to Jesus. And, um, as I said earlier, it's, she's not being immoral in, in doing that. But, um, the, the interesting thing in Matthew is that she speaks to Jesus and he doesn't immediately respond. And so as a reader, we're kind of waiting. Wait, what's, 
Why isn't he talking with her? And uh, in Matthew's gospel, it's the disciples actually who step in and who invite um, invite Jesus to to do something. And let's take a look at at what that might might be. Um, she asks for healing for her daughter. Her, the disciples, because Jesus is quiet, the disciples say, "Send her, her send her away," because she keeps crying out after us. Now, uh, that is one way of, of translating the particular verb that's used here by Matthew. But another way is to, to translate it as to loose. And so Dr. A.J. Levine, who um, uh, is an excellent New Testament scholar, she uh, suggests that maybe what the disciples are saying is, Look, Jesus, just go ahead and heal her and we can be on our way because it's a bit of a distraction right now, you know. So either the disciples are saying we want to ignore her because she's Gentile or they're saying, look, let's just take care of it and move on. In probably in either case, that's not really the, the appropriate response. Jesus wants to spend a little bit of time focused here. And he wants to engage, uh, with this, with this woman. But the way he does when he responds is to say, I've only been sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And that feels like Jesus is maybe stiff arming her at this point. Um, but again, let's think about what, um, what we've been talking about in terms of redemptive history. When you read Matthew's gospel, um, Jesus sets up the, the message where he wants his disciples, uh, who are Jewish, to spread the news in Galilee, Judea, to other Jews about this coming kingdom. And then at the very end of Matthew, at Jesus' resurrection, he instructs his disciples to go into all the world. And then we know in Pentecost from Acts chapter one that the Holy Spirit comes upon the, the early church and empowers the disciples to go out um, uh, in, under the power of the Spirit and preach the gospel to these Gentiles. So uh, early in the story, and that's in Jesus's ministry story, which is where we are now in meeting the Canaanite woman, we haven't yet had the resurrection. We haven't yet had Pentecost. And the focus for Jesus is on the lost sheep of Israel. And so the, the, Paul picks the same thing up at the beginning of Romans, you know, that the gospel was presented first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. So, I mean, it's not what Jesus is saying here and Paul picks up later. Um, is, is this redemptive plan? Because Jesus is the savior of the world, but he is also the Messiah. And so that, that's what's coming out here in Jesus's teaching. But the woman says, Lord, you've got to help me. And so she says, Lord here. That's where we see this Canaanite woman acting in a sense, maybe like, uh, Rahab or Tamar, a faithful follower even though she's not ethnically Jewish. And so this idea of Lord help me means she, she is identifying Jesus as, as, as the one, right? As, as, um, well, she identified him earlier in the story as son of David. So absolutely locating him within 
the uh, redemptive story of Israel and now saying, Lord, I mean, she is stepping away from her paganism here and embracing kind of like Ruth did in the story, um, in her story, when she said, I want to follow you, Naomi, your God will be my God. You know, this is sort of, I think, where the Canaanite woman is going. Um, and then we come to Jesus, uh, you know, saying, well, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And that, whew, that's where, to me, the, the hard part of the story is, because here's a woman who is really uh, just in absolute distress at the illness of her daughter. And it doesn't make sense that Jesus keeps seemingly pushing back on that. And I think that, and, and there's no way, let me just say also, whether he's saying puppy or dog, full-grown dog, either way, it's, it's not a compliment. So it, it, uh, and, and in either case, he's still saying, I'm not ready to do it, or I might not do it. And that, that we just have to kind of look at, you know? And, um, and so, uh, Levine, who I mentioned earlier, uh, she draws an excellent example from history at this time where the hist- when you want to talk about a good ruler, and I'm talking like the uh, emperors, um, Augustus or in the second century, Hadrian, sometimes they would get requests from average people. And the thought was at the day, look, that person has no business at all speaking to an emperor. They're just, you know, the the average person. You know, it'd be like me assuming that I could go and chat with the president of the United States or any country for that matter. It's like, Lynn, what, what are you thinking? You're just an average person. But there are these stories that are recorded by uh, ancient historians where, in the case, let's say, of Augustus, he, um, this, this, former soldier of his, an older guy, says he's he has to appear in court. He wants Augustus to defend him. And, uh, and you know, quite naturally, the emperor just ignores him. And so the man pulls up his sleeve and he shows uh, Augustus the scars. And he says, hey, I didn't find a substitute for the battle in Actium, which was one of the key battles that led to Augustus becoming emperor. And, and so Augustus thought, you know, you're right. I, I am the kind of emperor that cares for his soldiers. And so he shows up in court. But the moral of the story is not that the soldier was right and Augustus was wrong. The moral of the story was that Augustus is really great because people typically would say, you shouldn't pay attention to them, but he is so great, he cares for everyone. And the, the same, a similar story with Hadrian. In this case, though, it's a woman who calls out with a request and he just wants to walk on by. And so she says, well, then cease to be Caesar, you know, cease being Caesar. So he stops at that moment and he gives her request um, a hearing. And so that, as Levine said, that could be a parallel for us to try and understand what Jesus is doing here is... He, he has said, look, I am just for Israel right now. In the redemptive history, 
the tasks that are assigned to me, this is what I'm doing right now, what I should be focusing on now. However, because I am also savior of the world, as the Samaritans in John 4 will proclaim him. I mean, that's also true at this same time. And so he acts that when she says to him, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Once again, she is saying, Jesus, your Lord, your son of David, you are the master. You can do all this. And Jesus says, woman, you have great faith. And so your request is granted. And so I think what we what we see here in this exchange is Jesus's um, uh, being that leader that cares for all, that doesn't follow the social norms of the day, which would have him ignore uh, the the person, or even just well, as, even if the disciples are saying heal her, they're really saying just heal her so we can be gone, like not really paying attention to her. Whereas Jesus sits with her and discovers her incredible faith, which means she is an example for all of us. So he's not shaming her. Uh, he's not um, discrediting her. He's exalting her incredible faith, uh, more faith than what he'll often find among uh, Israel, who uh, we might say, has the advantage of scripture and and all of that and 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 so should should know the right answers. Um, Levine also brings up another point that I think is fantastic. Jesus says to the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount that it's good to turn the other cheek. And in her moment of distress, this woman um, is willing to bear whatever the disciples said. And in her exchange with Jesus is, um, is meek, right? Is, is demonstrating a meekness that Jesus has enjoined all of his disciples to do. She has a tenacity like the, uh, another story in the Gospel of Luke where you have this woman, this widow who insists that injustice has happened to her and she seeks justice and the unjust judge wants to ignore her, but she persists and he finally throws up his hands and says, oh my gosh, this this woman is going to keep at it until I listen to her. That kind of persistence is uh, praised by Jesus in the story. And he says, look, how much more will your heavenly father, who is so just, bring justice to your cause? But still, nevertheless, he says, as disciples, you've got to be persistent. So meekness and persistence that's what this Canaanite woman or the Syrophoenician woman demonstrate. And um, that might take us to our third um, segment, which is looking at application. I would say that would be a real application for, uh, for us to not, um, not give up in, in our time of... Um, fast foods and Amazon delivery uh, in a couple of hours. I, I worry about that. Like things can happen so fast. And that's not in typically in the walk of discipleship. Things don't happen that fast. 
in my exactly. life anyway. Maybe not in yours. I, I shouldn't speak for you, Suri, in that one. <laughs> no, I totally agree. Uh, yeah, thank you for unpacking that for us. And I think you and I were talking earlier that this is not a story that we hear spoken about as frequently. So I think it's very helpful to just go a little deeper into what's actually happening in this story. Uh, Earlier, you described the woman as modeling exemplary discipleship. And so I wonder, as we talk about practical applications for our own faith today, clearly that seems to be an obvious practical application. What, what is it that we can learn from her example, as you say, of modeling discipleship for our, our faith today? Yeah, I, I think, um, well, I think, first of all, she knew who Jesus is. And I'm not sure how she knew that, but I know today we can know who Jesus is through reading scripture, through being in a community of faith and doing certain practices, prayer, fasting, communion. There's certain, you know, the holidays of Easter and Christmas, the, the church calendar, so to speak, just placing ourselves uh, in spaces where we can hear the Spirit nudging us, speaking to us, guiding us. And sometimes that's through other believers. Sometimes it's through circumstances. Sometimes it's through His Word. I mean, God can do any of those and <laughs> more. Um, so I think part of that is she, she somehow knew who Jesus was and persisted in that. Both the Canaanite woman and the... Uh, persistent widow. Um, I refuse to call her nagging widow. I want to say <laughs> persistent widow because that's yeah. what she was. I think that's another... I'm, I'm impressed when I read uh, biographies of believers and they've prayed for years for a family member or for a particular ministry door to open or whatever it is. And you can say that in a sentence or a paragraph, you know, so for five years I prayed about this, but actually that's five times 365 days. Like that's, that's a long time. It's not just a paragraph on a page. So I think I, I tend to, uh, you know, just be incredibly impatient and not, um, and not just persevere. And so that would be another faithfulness. And then I think, you know, she's asking for her daughter and she is uh, desperate for help for someone that she loves. And I hope that all of us have relationships, um, whether it's family, friends, um, that, that we have people in our lives that we care about. And because we can also just get so busy with efficiency and task, um, completing tasks and all of that stuff. And in, in our culture, not in all cultures, but I think sometimes in Western cultures, or I'll say um, white evangelicalism, <laughs> to be real specific, you know. And, and I think she, uh, I mean, she's a, a mother, so she's passionate about her child. But I think there's also just that sense, are we passionate about people? <laughs> Yes. And she certainly models that, whereas the disciples, either they want to send her away or they just want to answer her question and move on. They're not really desiring a relationship there, and Jesus does. And so I think that would be another takeaway.
Yeah. A couple of things that I hear you saying there that really stood out to me that I just want to reiterate for our listeners. One is that you said she she knew Jesus. And so that caused me to think that that's something for us to take away here of are we doing the things that you just said that of of leaning in, being sensitive to the spirit so that we can recognize Jesus in the people and in the world around us. Um, Would we see him? Would we see his face and recognize it? Uh, And then there's a slow, persistent discipleship and faithfulness that you talked about that she models, which again, like you said, is very countercultural for us. And that's a really good challenge. Um, And then finally is that God cares about our flourishing as people and he is, um, he honors us when we advocate for that on behalf of others. And so I think that those are some really um, important themes for us to pay attention to. So thank you, Lynn, for helping us dig deeper into this story today. Listeners, if you are following along with Lynn's Seminary Now course on women in the New Testament, today's conversation correlates with episode five of that Seminary Now course. So if you uh, were intrigued by what we talked about today and you're ready to go, even even deeper, you can go and watch that episode from her course. And we encourage you to join us back again next week as we continue this special summer series. Lynn, thank you for today's conversation. It's been a pleasure. Always enjoy talking with you, Serene, and of course, looking at the Bible. Yes, absolutely. All right, Alabaster Jar listeners, we'll see you back here next time. You've been listening to another episode of The Alabaster Jar. If you enjoyed this week's conversation, please subscribe, share, and plan to join us again next week as we continue this special summer series. To explore further the topics and stories discussed in this week's episode, check out Lynn's Seminary Now course on Women in the New Testament and Carmen's Seminary Now course on Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. We've included links to both of those courses in today's episode description.